Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He's arrogant and never at rest because he's as greedy as the grave and like death he's never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they're drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? 
It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It's just worth saying there's another great organization that uh, looks at the persecuted church across the world. That's Christian Solidarity Worldwide. And our own Olivia Watkinson, always at hand there, Olivia. She'd love to speak to you afterwards if you want a personal sort of input. She works with Christian Solidarity Worldwide, as did uh, Dan Sinclair before. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are the God who has been speaking to us through this book of Habakkuk. Thank you that your word is living and active. It speaks into our hearts, into our lives. And we pray you do so again tonight. Uh, you do so for the sake of the glory of Jesus' name. You do so so that we might be those who live by faith in him. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, trust me. They're words that are going to leave you in turmoil, aren't they? Trust me. Uh, trust me that the rope will take your weight. You experienced that when you were you know, abseiling as a kid? Or, trust me, you know, this is an operation that you need, Mr. Marion Jones. Uh, trust me, no, really, the, uh, the 3.30 at Doncaster, you want to put your money on that horse. Trust me. Uh, trust me that the car is in good working order. It's surprising for its age. Trust me. When we hear those words, we're left with a decision, aren't we? A simple decision. Will we trust the person who speaks. Trust me. Trust me, says the Lord. There will be a day when I will judge all the evil of the earth. And on that day, the only way to be found right is to put your faith in my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to live by that faith. Trust me. That leaves us with a question. Will we? Do we? See, that's what Habakkuk says, God says to Habakkuk here, trust me, wait, I am going to act. David's already reminded us of the situation in Habakkuk. We're in about 600 BC, and we're in the rebellious people of God, the nation of Judah. We've seen that they're largely half-hearted. They're more interested in themselves and what they can get for themselves than they are about honoring the Lord. They're more worried about their property prices than they are about coming to the prayer meeting. And this half-hearted people are under God's judgment. And Habakkuk, his heart aches for the people of God that amongst them, God would be honored. And so, as we saw in chapter 1 and verse 2, Habakkuk cries out with this heartfelt plea, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? How long must I look out on your people, Lord, and see you dishonored because of the way they behave? And as David said, Habakkuk gets what is a slightly disappointing answer for him. The Lord says, don't worry, I've seen the issue, and I'm going to bring the thoroughly brutal, evil, and idolatrous, proud Babylonians to smash my own people. And Habakkuk goes, what? What do you mean? That's that's not fair. How could a perfectly good God use evil people to, to judge your own nation? And last week, as 
David took us to chapter 2 and verse 1. We saw Habakkuk standing there on the wall saying, I'm going to wait. That, that actually is the start of faith. He says, I'm going to wait. I'm going to listen to what you've got to say about this, Lord. And here's the answer. And the first thing that the Lord says is, justice will come. Wait for it. Justice will come. Wait for it. Have a look at verse 2 with me. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. See, this is not just a message for Habakkuk's day. This is a message to be recorded for general distribution. It's not recorded for posterity. It's recorded for proclamation. A herald is to take it. The world needs to hear this message urgently. And verse 3 tells us why it is so important. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come, and it will not delay. Literally, the word is, this is a revelation, a vision from the Lord that pants for the end. This is God's word longing for fulfillment. It is final. It is true. It may take some time, says the Lord. It may linger, but it will happen. Now, the Lord's timing often is not necessarily ours. We live in an instant culture, don't we? We want everything now. We can get it on the never-never, on credit. We want the flash new car, you can have it now. You want a coffee, you can have that now. We even have ready meals. We hate waiting. In fact, one of the most frustrating things about summertime is that great wait that we have as we go on holiday. It's called the motorway traffic jam. As we sit on the A303 or M5 or M4, fill in the number as appropriate, and we're incredibly frustrated because we hate being held up. But the Lord says, no, wait. This word will come true. And as Peter records, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So he says, wait for it. But what is it that Habakkuk's to wait for? Well, as we read the rest of the chapter, we can see that it's judgment to come. A judgment first and foremost on the Babylonians. And that's what happened. 539 BC, Cyrus, king of the Persians, comes, and the Babylonians get their comeuppance. They're destroyed. But that's not actually the picture of the whole of this chapter, is it? Because we saw in the middle of this chapter that phrase in verse 14. Do you remember it? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a much bigger thing that Habakkuk is to wait for. The end that's being talked about in Habakkuk chapter 2 seems to be the day when all wrongs will be righted. Or as the word is put in the New Testament in Romans chapter 2, the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. The day when the whole world will be judged. It's that day when the Lord says, Habakkuk, all people will receive true justice. That's the day you've got to wait for. There will be a day when all evil will be punished. Now, I don't know what you make about the end of the world, a day of final rec reckoning. It won't happen because of uh, global warning. It won't be the result of a, a North Korean nuclear strike or even President Trump's response to that. It won't be the result of a, a comet hitting the earth. No, it's quite clear that the end of the world, as we know it, will result from the return of the Lord Jesus Christ as judge. 
And you might doubt that there'll be a day of judgment. You may feel that alien invasion is a stronger possibility. But, but God actually has never made a promise he can't keep. Now, the Jews of Habakkuk's day saw that. They were actually old people in exile in Babylon when finally the Medes and Persians came down over 70 years later and destroyed the Babylonian Empire. God kept his word. In fact, God has pulled off every stunt he's promised, flooding the earth, parting the Red Sea, destroying cities, destroying empires, even a baby born of a virgin, a man who grew up to predict his own death and resurrection, and proceeded to die according to the prophecy of the Old Testament and be raised to life. The evidence is that God is always good for his word, that the end will come, that Jesus will return. Not, not as a baby born in obscurity. No, the New Testament teaches that he'll come as a great king that everyone will bow before. Wait, says God. I will bring an end to evil in the world. Now, let me ask you, isn't that fantastic news? Isn't that fantastic news that the pain and the agony and the suffering that we see will not go on forever? I can tell you that the Christians of North Korea think that's fantastic news. And the Christians of Eritrea think that's fantastic news as they struggle and suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine a God who, who didn't care about his world enough to do anything about it? A God who wasn't bothered about bringing justice? I don't think that sort of God would be, be worth worshipping, would it? Worth believing in. One who didn't love the world enough to act one day to right all the wrongs, heal all the hurts. But, but our God's not like that. And so he says to Habakkuk, look, I know you've got a heart for the honor of my name, and you've got a heart for the end of evil. And I can tell you, wait, it will happen. Justice will come, wait. I mean, can you imagine a world where we have to sort our own problems, where we, where we rely on humanity? I was, I was reading this yesterday. I've left it over here. So has anyone seen or heard of the Channel 4 series Eden? If you haven't, what they've done, it's like reality TV on speed. They, it's not like Love Island, this is different. They've taken 24 people and they put them on a Scottish island with 100 days worth of food. And the idea was that it, they'd watch as a community formed and as they helped one another out. Let me read from the article in the paper. It was supposed to be the ultimate test of human nature, a chance to prove that human beings were capable of working together. The article goes on. Anyone who watched the initial episodes, however, saw how quickly paradise descended into something altogether less heavenly. The producers could never have predicted the dramatic scenes that would play out, fistfights, tantrums, participants getting so drunk on homemade brewed moonshine they collapsed and a regression back to medieval gender roles that led to more than half the women leaving the show. That's humanity helping itself. And the thing is, of course, that Paradise Lost on the show Eden is just the storyline of the Bible. It's the world we live in and the world we look out upon day in, day out. But we won't always look on a world like that. Because God says justice will come. Wait. Wait for it. And trust me. See, that's the second thing Habakkuk is told. Justice will come. So trust me, says the Lord. Let me read you verse 4 again. 
See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. See, in Habakkuk's day, the Babylonians, they just marched on and on and on in conquest. They hadn't really given much of a thought to anyone but themselves. So when finally the the Persians do come down, we find Belshazzar, king of Babylon at the time, he's not manning the defences with the troops. He's having an almighty drinking session, a, a wild party, sculling booze actually from the cups taken from the temple in Jerusalem. You see, that's the way of the puffed up. They face God's judgment and they say to themselves, drinking myself silly is much more important than thinking about really whether there's a God and whether I need to know him. But the person who rejects God like that, they're a bag of contradictions, says Habakkuk. Did you see that there in those verses? They're arrogant. Oh, sure, they don't need God. But they're never at rest. Never have peace. Though they're apparently so confident. Why is that? Verse 5 again. Because he is greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. That's the chilling testimony of the world that lives for number one. Just just as death is never satisfied, daily in our world claiming victim after victim, so those who reject God's rule always are craving for something to, to fill the gap in their lives that should be relationship with the living God. They want more and more and more. You know that famous quote, don't you? The one by J.D. Rockefeller, the 19th century American oil billionaire. To be a billionaire in the 19th century was quite an achievement. These days, there are come you know, to a penny. But J.D. Rockefeller, he was asked, how much money would you need, Mr. Rockefeller, to be truly happy? You know his, his answer? Just a little bit more. Always just a little bit more. And isn't that the testimony of our lives? The testimony of the world we live in? Uh, this is the person who thinks that death is something that happens to other people. It will never catch them awares. The person who doesn't think they'll ever have to stand before a God and give account for their lives. And I have to ask you, is this you? Because this is a dangerous way to live in the light of God's certain justice. To live as though he's not there. But, but there is another way to Wait. It's sandwiched in the middle of this description. It's probably nine verses that are at the heart of a life-changing relationship with God. It came at the end of verse 4. David's already pointed out these verses are vital in the Bible. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. To be righteous is to be right with God. To be declared innocent, though you're guilty. To be in a right relationship with God though by nature you reject him and you're his enemy. And what distinguishes the righteous person from the unrighteous? Is it that the righteous person has upright desires, a sober lifestyle, a complete lack of arrogance, and they're never greedy? Is it a whole list of opposites, the good deeds to counter the bad things of the puffed up? No, it's simply one word, faithfulness. That's how the righteous live, by his faithfulness or by his faith. Because faithfulness is simply faith enacted over time. It's faith day after day after day after day. 
That's faithfulness. Now, faith is a word that has been taken on a slightly strange, mysterious connotations in our culture, hasn't it? So uh, people say, oh, I wish I had your faith. A bit like faith was some sort of genetic gift or disorder. Like, I, I wish I had your blue eyes. I obviously can't have your blue eyes because I was not born like that. I wish I had your faith. But faith in the Bible is a very simple thing. It's not belief in things that are impossible. Faith, faith is simply trust, an active trust. So you are all exercising faith at the moment. You walked in, you looked at the chair, you made a rational decision, and you thought, I trust that chair. I'll sit down on it. You're exercising faith in the chair. That is all faith is. You believe the chair will hold you up. It is proving good for that at the moment. And they all look pretty stable. You can rest assured. That is faith, trust. So the question is, from the Lord, will you trust me? Would you have faith? The real issue in life is, is not, do we have faith? Everyone has faith. I mean, the puffed up here, their faith is in themselves. They trust themselves. That's the way many people live their lives, isn't it? I'm okay, I trust me. Some people are a bit naive. They go, I'm okay, I trust humanity. That They'll sort it out. We all trust something. We all believe in something to give us purpose, security, and meaning in life. The question is not, do you have faith? The question is, who is the object of your faith? What are you trusting? And God says, have faith in me. Trust me. Because actually only putting your faith in one person will leave you right with God on the day when he comes to end all evil. And that person, of course, is Jesus Christ. As David pointed out, Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, it'll be on the screen. Let me read it to you. The Apostle Paul writes, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We're actually only here this evening because of the effect that verse had on a German monk in the 16th century. Martin Luther had been oppressed by this sense that he needed to live up to some standard that he thought was called the righteousness of God. And the more that he heard of God's perfect standard of righteousness, the more he felt condemned by it and judged by it and in despair. Until he came to Romans 1.17 and he understood that righteousness here is not a standard that he had to live up to. No, it was a gift from God. It was a gift that said, if you trust me, I will treat you as though you are as righteous as my son, Jesus. Trust me, says the Lord, and I'll make you right with me. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, in modern-day Turkey, in Galatians 3.11, again quoting this verse, clearly no one who relies on the law will be justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. In other words, it's obvious, isn't it, that none of us can live up to the standards of God by keeping his law. It's not that you need to try and be a better person so that God likes you. No, actually, the only way to be right with God is by trusting him, to have faith. Because it's only by trusting what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus at the cross that the justice of God can be dealt with. Because only at the cross does God take our guilt, our unrighteousness, 
and pile it upon his son so that he is punished in our place so that we might have his righteousness as a gift and be treated as the totally innocent children of God when actually we're guilty. That's why when you trust what God has done for you in Jesus, you're right with him. Not because of our good lives, but because Jesus has died in our place. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. So imagine you're, you're ushered into the divine courtroom on that last day when finally all evil is going to be wiped from the face of the earth. And the book of your life is opened. And every deed is laid bare. And every word has been recorded. And every thought is disclosed. Now would you have faith that your life is worthy of the perfect standards of God to be welcomed into his perfect new creation. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming, isn't it? Your guilt, my guilt, it's obvious. But then the Lord Jesus shuts the book, and on the front cover is stamped the words, payment paid. Words stamped in blood, and underneath signed, Jesus Christ. See, it's faith in Christ and what he has done for us at the cross that makes people righteous. Nothing else. It is a gift, a gift from God. And our loving Heavenly Father simply says to us, trust me. Would you trust me on that one? Would you trust me when I say that when my son died for you, it worked? Would you trust me? Because if you trust me, I'll treat you as righteous. The righteous will live by faith. And it's vital we trust him. Because justice will come. Here's the last thing we see. Justice will come, wait for it. Justice will come, trust me, says the Lord. Justice will come, woe to evil. Because in the majority of this passage, we have a, a picture basically of Babylon getting their comeuppance. God pronounces woe to evil to Habakkuk. Uh, look at chapter 2, verse 6. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, woe to him, who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Woe here is actually a word used at a funeral, at a lament over the dead. It's as though God is saying to those who are evil, you're as good as dead. And the problem you see with this list of evil things in this chapter is, is most of them are actually crimes that would never make it to our news. At the heart of all this behavior is really a very simple attitude. Oh, yeah, the Babylonians, they displayed it brutally in their culture. But, but do you see the repeated phrase that comes in verse 8 and verse 17? For you have shed human blood, and you've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Verse 17, again, the same words. For you have shed human blood and destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. And the easy thing is we read these verses and think, well, I've not done that. I'm, I'm not a brutal, mass-murdering, pagan nation. But then... Actually, what these verses record is the attitude of self first, self over God, self over other people. We might not see the same violence in Chessington today, but we see the same heart attitude condemned here. You see, the first three woes are this. They're woe to self-centered materialism. In verses 6 to 8, the Babylonians have stolen, they have 
extorted, they have plundered, they've shed blood for their own material gain. And of course, we probably don't commit crime to make ourselves wealthy. If you have done that, the great news is the righteous live by faith. But we certainly think very little about others a lot of the time. People spend their lives building their own empire, grafting to improve their lot, exhausting themselves to put a little more into their savings or to move to a slightly bigger house, to feel secure in our property or our pension. But in the end, all that effort in this life will seem pointless. That's actually the way God has wired the world. Did you see that in verse 13? Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire and the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? See, when Jesus returns to to judge the world, all that treading on others to make it up the next step in the career ladder, all that time spent on ourselves will have been wasted, fuel for the fire. All that, that slaving for our personal comfort and glory, in the end, it won't be our glory. It'll be God's glory that fills every nook and cranny of creation. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water cover the sea. Woe to self-centered materialism. Secondly, there's woe to self-interested hedonism. Hedonism, that desire just to live for pleasure. Verse 15, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they're drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. The Babylonians liked nothing better than the party. Drink and sex were cheap in Babylon. A bit too much wine and an, an eye full of flesh. It was all a bit of a laugh, you know, get smashed, get laid. It's the life of Kingston on a Friday or Saturday night. Verse 16, you'll be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn, drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you and disgrace will cover your glory. They may have gloried in a great night out. They might have thought nothing of posting a picture of their mates off their heads on Instagram. They didn't even consider the emotional consequences of using Tinder. But one day they'd feel the great shame of all their deeds. Because the Lord's cup in his right hand is no joking matter. It's the cup of his anger poured out on people in judgment. Oh, there's, there's nothing funnier than you know, a few beers and a, and a one-night stand until you find yourself standing before a perfectly good God. And his, your deeds are exposed to his righteous burning anger. Then your glory turns to shame. But woe to the hedonism that just seeks comfort. And I expect most of us here can't even spell Tinder, let alone know what it is, and haven't been drunk since 1962. But there is still a great danger that we live for pleasure. What makes me feel good in the next 5, 10, 15 minutes? I might not get drunk on alcohol, but I'll get drunk on the latest box set and just consume time with it because it is easy. It makes me feel nice. Woe to self-centered hedonism, says the Lord. And lastly, woe to self-deluded idolatry. The five woes end with this fifth one. Look at verse 19 with me. 
Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. It's just stupid, isn't it? Worshipping the creation rather than the creator. I mean, what, what good is a statue you've made? All, all those statues across the world, carved by human hands. Can, can the statue speak, says the Lord? Can the statue guide? Can, does the statue come to life? Now, I guess we, again, haven't got little things in our garden shed that we're worshipping. You know, gnomes that we've given too much status to. But do you know what? We do expect created things to actually breathe life into us. So we think, when I get that new car, I genuinely will be a bit happier. We breathe life, say, into the, the God of family. We try to control our children's todays and their tomorrows, thinking that we can give them the life that's eluded us. There was a very honest article in my news review magazine this week. It was taken from a bloke writing in a newspaper, and he says this about the holidays if you're a pushy parent. I used to think that one of the benefits of having children is that you can transfer your most cherished dreams to them. Okay, you reason. I'm never going to be chief executive of a FTSE 100 company or to win a screenwriting Oscar, but maybe one of my children can. He, he says the problem is this. It turns out, just as you lack the tenacity and grit to climb the ladder yourself, you can't summon the energy to be bothered to train your children to do it either. We just worship created things, whether it's leisure, our hobbies, our material things. And idolatry doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. We make things and then we give them authority or power over us. And we do it time and time again. Take, take the stupid car as an example. You know? It's a lump of plastic and metal that we gave some imaginary paper that we no longer see because it comes on a plastic card for, and then it's ours. Yeah? That's all it is, a lump of plastic and metal. If someone else hits it, I bet you will emotionally engage more with that than me talking about God returning to judge the earth today. If during this talk I came, someone came in from the back and said, um, by the way, mate, um, someone's plowed into your car, and I, I had to read out you know, the registration number, and I read out your registration number, someone's plowed into your car, I bet suddenly you'd all wake up and your heart would go. It's a lump of metal. It's got no life in it. It does you no good. It's a thing. Some of your cars have no life in them anyway. It's obvious. <laughs> but we invest stuff in That's idolatry. We draw emotional security from something that has no life at all. Something that actually we're supposed to find only in the love of God for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's why our passage ends in verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The world is clamoring to make sense of life, investing in the creation, crying out for it to satisfy. And the Lord says, just shut up. I'm in charge. Listen. Woe to you who slave away getting wealth and comfort for yourself. The Lord's going to clear the earth of your possessions and fill it with your glory, with his glory. Woe to you who take pleasure in drunkenness and sexual conquest or just take pleasure in pleasure. 
the Lord is going to pour out his anger on all the things that you glory in. Woe to you who worship creation, the work of your hands, be your money or your status or your family or your lifestyle. The true God exists, and you've chose to worship idols instead. And the fact that evil will be punished is in the end not just a problem for Babylon, it's a problem for us. Can you honestly say that your heart is free from self-centered gain at the expense of others? Free from self-centered behavior that uses others? Free from self-made gods that displace the true and living God? You know, I'm, I'm condemned by all of these woes. See, we're waiting for a day of perfect justice. We long for justice in our world, and we're waiting as guilty men and women. And that's why only faith in Jesus can save. But as we finish, it's really important to see this. True faith is not just a passing acknowledgement that it's handy that Jesus has died for me. It's a belief that runs to the core of your life. Look back at verse 4 again. You see, what it says is, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Live by. Live by. See, faith's not just an assessment. Oh, yeah, I think that's true. It's an active trust that commands our affections every day. True faith is a belief that changes everything. That's the context that the writer of the Hebrews quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in. It's the last time this verse is used in the New Testament. He, he says this. It's going to appear on the screen. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. You see, the, the Hebrew Christians were facing persecution. The heat was being turned up on them for following Jesus. And the convenient thing for them was to drift back into Judaism, nominal Jewish religion, because that was acceptable in the Roman Empire of their day, whereas this Christian sect meant that you got it in the neck. And therefore, what the writer says is, the righteous person will live by their faith and not shrink back. They'll keep trusting Jesus, whatever the cost. Now, we live in a time when the heat is being turned up on Christians. I mean, if the National Trust volunteers are having to take a stand on this for what they believe, you're pretty sure that we're going to have to take a stand for what we believe. I mean, what do you think life is going to be like for a Christian in five to ten years' time? in our country. Do you think you're going to be able to have a job in public office if you will not sign an equal opportunities policy that demands that you promote all forms of given sexuality of the day? Do you think you'll be a teacher? Do you think you'll be able to be a head? I'm not sure that you will. Do you think you'll be able to work in the health service if you will not promote the world's agenda in those areas. I, I went to see um, uh, a couple to chat about how they were doing, and, and the, the, the mum was really, really astute because she said this, and I thought this was a really insightful comment. She said, look, I'm really worried about my kids. I don't want my kids to be persecuted. I don't want them to have a hard time for being Christians. I don't want my kids not to be able to have the jobs they want. 
I don't want them to set their heart on being a doctor or whatever and actually that not be a possibility for them simply because they follow Christ. So she said, I, 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 that, that gives me doubts. I want to be really certain that this is true, that I believe this, because this is going to have enormous consequences for my children if I raise them as Christians today. Did you see the tension? The temptation is to shrink back. But the writer of the Hebrews says, my righteous one will live by faith. And that's the danger. Our desire for comfort means that we will drift from the Lord Jesus. So we started by looking at persecution. What if standing for Christ meant that you lost your job? What if standing for Christ meant that you were rejected by your family? What if standing for Christ meant that you were ridiculed, attacked even for your beliefs? What if standing for Christ meant that you were forced to live in poverty, despised and rejected? What if standing for Christ meant that your children got mocked at school and they couldn't get the jobs they'd set their hearts on because of what they believed? You see, that's the world that Habakkuk lives in. And he's left with an option. The Lord says to him, Habakkuk, judgment is coming. There will be a day of justice, a day when all evil is gone and all people see that I truly am God. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Trust me, says the Lord. And for us tonight, I think the biggest challenge for the majority of us is not that we don't know that we are guilty sinners. It's not that we don't know that Christ has died to deal with our sin. It's the Hebrews' application of Habakkuk 2.4. It's will we live by that faith, whatever the cost in the world around us? Because we're waiting with Habakkuk for the day when the Lord will right every wrong. And the only way to be right on that day is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.